Good morning. Today we're reading from Genesis chapter 28 verses 1 to 5 and 29 verses 1 to 14 and that's on page 20 of the church Bibles. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Chapter 29. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the field with three flocks of sheep lying near it, because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said, and here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high, it is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well, then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. G'day everyone, it's good to be with you today. If you missed it before, my name is Scott. I'm glad to be here with you. Special welcome to the kids. Great to see you guys. Um, Really glad you're with us today. I'm going to start today a little bit interactive. I want to pose a question to you. Here's the question. I want you to talk about it with a few people around you. Um, What are some of the reasons why people decide not to be a Christian? Why why would would people decide why not to be a Christian? Chat with the person beside you, and we'll come back together in a few moments and, and see what you come up with. Right, hopefully that's long enough. Um, who's going to be the brave person and tell us what their, the person beside them 
was saying. Any ideas? Why, why, why do people decide not to be a Christian? Yell, yell out the answers. Don't need God. Life's easy as it is. I'm not a sinner. I don't need saving. Christians are hypocrites. Some from this side? I don't believe in God in the first place. Never heard about God. Never heard about Christianity. Injustices in the world that God seems to do nothing about. That's a really key one, isn't it? Uh, In fact, right from the beginning... It seemed that the pro- a problem that people had with Christianity was that there's suffering in the world, there's injustices, people undergo all sorts of hardship. How can we believe in a God who would let that happen? It's a tough question. It's something that swirled around Christianity for a long time. We still hear these questions today. And if we're honest, there's a lot of us who are Christians and, and we're really not sure about some of the answers for this ourselves. What is God doing? Why is God doing it? Because we do, don't we? We see people go through incredible hardships. Just this last week, we had the great news of the Thai soccer team being rescued from those flooded caves. Great news, celebrations, and rightly so too, they all got out. But their rescue cost one man his life, one diver his life. And the rest of the world is rightly celebrating, but this guy's family and his friends... They're dealing with an incredible amount of grief right now. We ourselves experience all sorts of hardships, don't we? From small things like having a a crazy day where the kids tire you out and test you time and again, where the boss gets on your back all the time, to to some things that are a little bit more serious, a bit bigger in life, illness, health issues. People in our church, we know this, people in our church are having some hard marriages. People in our church have uh, hard relationships with their kids. People in our church are dealing with mental health problems. People in our church are dealing with uh, physical health issues. These are, these are real things, real hardships we go through. And we can sometimes think, why? What's God doing with all of this? And today I want to address something of that. I'm not going to try and cover everything But as we look through this next chunk of of Genesis, this this next bit of Jacob's life, we're going to go, we're going to see a man who goes through some some real hardship in his life. And as we look at Jacob go through this, we're going to ask the question, what's God doing through this? Why is God doing this? If you're here today and you're really not sure about this whole God thing, well, uh, welcome, really glad that you're here. Uh, Today, I'm probably going to talk mostly to the Christians in the room. But if you're not sure about the whole God thing yet, I'm glad you're here. And I do hope you still tune in. This talk isn't going to try and answer everything and give you a quick and easy answer to the question of suffering. But we're going to look what the Bible does tell us at least one thing about hardships here and what God's doing. And so... If you're here today and you're not sure about God, I, I really hope that today provokes you just to think of even just a little bit more about God, to keep considering this for yourself. And if you're here today and you do call yourself a Christian, welcome as well. Um, I hope today helps you wrestle with this for your own life. 
And I hope we actually do get to see the goodness of God even more clearly. Let's pray then before we go any further. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you that you speak to us. Sometimes the things you have to say, are uh, we, we may not know how to hear them and how to respond to them. So we ask for your help now as we listen and think harder about your word. Please would you help us. Please would you help us hear what you say and know how to respond in thankfulness and gratitude and obedience to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing we see in our passage today is that God chooses and uses people who aren't ready. God chooses and uses people who aren't ready. Last week we saw that Jacob was chosen by God. This happened before Jacob was even born. But it's really clear to us that Jacob's he's just not, not a really godly guy. Far from it. Last week, again, we saw him, he selfishly uh, got his older brother's uh, birthright and then he deceitfully stole his older brother's blessing. And this week we catch up with Jacob and he's on the run. He's taken off, he's left home and he's going to a place called Paddan Aram. That's roughly kind of the journey on the yellow line there that he's taking. Jacob's going for two reasons. Firstly, most importantly, his brother wants to kill him. You've got to run away at that point, right? Secondly, his parents don't want him to marry one of the local girls down there. They want him to marry someone from up here at Paddan Aram, a relative. And it might sound a bit odd to us that they want their son to marry a relative. Uh, but that's, that was the culture back then, and it's the culture in many parts of the world now. Maybe you might think all this upheaval in Jacob's life has changed his perspective on things. But No. We see in the opening chapters, uh, chapter 20, 28 and 29, that Jacob is just the same jerk as he was before. Firstly, we see this when God speaks to Jacob. In, in chapter 28, verse 13, God speaks to Jacob. God appears to him and he gives him these great promises. God confirms to Jacob that he's chosen him. God says that he's going to give Jacob many descendants and the descendants are going to, they're going to inherit, they're going to own this land of Canaan. God tells Jacob that his family will bless the whole earth. God even promises to be with Jacob on this journey, to care and protect him, to bring him back safely. How do you reckon Jacob responds to all of this? Thankfulness, gratitude, a commitment to live life for God then? Look at what Jacob says in verse 20. If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking... And will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household? Well, then the Lord will be my God. You get to see where Jacob's heart's at here, don't you? God, if you come through for me, if you look after me, keep me safe, well, then I'll serve you. Yeah, then you can be my God. Jacob, he's really just the same self-absorbed guy that he was a chapter earlier. He'll only serve God if God serves him first. And that's the same kind of Jacob that continues as he arrives in, in Paddan Aram. Remember, he, he's here to look for a wife. He's gone to Paddan Aram to look for a wife. And he comes to a watering well. And at this moment, we're supposed to be thinking, oh, 
That sounds familiar. I'm sure I've heard this before. Because we have indeed heard this before. In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham wanted to find a wife for his son. So he sent his servant. And where did he send his servant to go to? To Paddan Aram, the same place. And when his servant got there, where did his servant find himself? He's, he's at a watering well. They're going to Paddan Aram to find a wife and they end up at a watering well. It's the same thing. And what we're supposed to do here is play spot the difference. You know, spot the difference, right? You've got the two pictures in the newspaper and there's a few differences between them. That's what we're supposed to do here as well. So let's look. How did the servant and Jacob differ? Well, the servant, when he got to the land, he, he, he got to the well and he prayed. He said, God, please give me success. Will you please do this for me, God? What does Jacob do when he gets there? We read it just before, didn't we? He asks the shepherds, can you show me where my uncle is? There's no thought of prayer at all. And then when God gave the servant success, when the servant found the right family, what did the servant do? He he overflowed in praise and thankfulness to God. What does Jacob do? When Jacob finds the right family, when Jacob sees Rachel, what does he do? He tries to curry favor with her. Uh, he, he tries to carry favor by giving her water. It's not even the right time for the sheep to be watered. Uh, see, Jacob here, he's relying on his own ability. He's relying on what he can do. He doesn't praise and thank God because he thinks everything that he has comes from him. See, Jacob may be chosen by God and God may well use Jacob, and he does. But Jacob falls far short of the mark, doesn't he? He's, he's very much still a work in progress. And all this points to the God's grace. All this points to God's grace. We touched on this last week, but we, we need to say it again, don't we? God's people aren't people who are perfect. We're, we're not people who've got it all together. We're not people who are, who are kicking the goals of godliness time and time again. No. And this is great news for us. Because when I think about it, I'm, I'm quite a... I'm kind of like Jacob, aren't I? See, what's Jacob like? He's, he's self-centered. He's so self-centered that he tore his family apart because he just wanted what belonged to his older brother. Now, maybe I haven't torn my family apart yet. Mum and dad are here today, in fact, so it's okay. And maybe you don't notice it, but that's probably because I've, I've learned to hide my self-centeredness better than Jacob has. But if I'm honest with you, that really is me too. There's a part of me that when I get up here, it's, it's more concerned about what you think of me than about speaking God's truth. I'm self-centered, just like Jacob. And what else is Jacob like? Well, he's a prayerless kind of person. He neither prays to God and relies on God in prayer. He doesn't even give thanks to God. There's a bit of me in that too, isn't there? How often do I pray and thank God for things? Or how often do I rely on my own strength, my own ability to get things done? I'm, I'm quite like Jacob. There might be some differences on the fringes, sure, but at the core, I'm like Jacob too. And isn't that you too? Maybe not exactly like him, because none of us are perfect. 
None of us have completed works that are, that are constantly kicking Christian goals. We're what the Bible calls sinners. But God is gracious. God chose Jacob and used Jacob. God chooses us and uses us despite our imperfections. That's what God does. Despite our sin, God makes us his people. He deals with the problem of sin in Jesus and then he calls us to belong to Jesus as his people. And we need to keep hearing this, don't we? Our status before God doesn't depend on what we do. It depends on God and on what God does, what God does for us in Jesus. This is the news we need to keep hearing again and again and again. We need to keep hearing this because it's so different, right? In our world, our standing, our status, our position in life, it nearly always depends on, on our appearance, on our performance, on, on what we can do. But it's not like that with God. God overlooks our performance. God overlooks our appearance. God looks to Jesus. So if we're with Jesus, it's, it's good. That's all we need to be with Jesus. Because God chooses and uses people who aren't up for it, who aren't ready. What good news that is. But it's also true to say that God doesn't just leave us like we are. And that's the second point. God refines his chosen people. And he often does this through hardship. We see this through the 20 years that Jacob spends up in Paddan Aram. Initially, Jacob faces two difficult things. And both of them bring up something from Jacob's past. Some way that he wronged others in his past. So, in the past, Jacob deceived his father. His father couldn't see, he was blind. So Jacob pretended to be his brother and then stole his brother's birthright. But in chapter 29, we see that Jacob is blinded. And then Jacob is deceived as well. See, he wants to marry Rachel, the good-looking sister. But for whatever reason, his sight's kind of taken away. It might be that the bride had to wear a thick veil, or maybe it's just too dark, or maybe Jacob had too much celebratory wine the night before. But whatever it is, Jacob can't see properly here, and his father plays a joke on him, a bit of a sister switcheroo. Instead of Rachel, it's Leah. And then Jacob wakes up the next morning, and Leah is there. It's, it's crazy. This is, this is a bad thing. Can you imagine that? It's also a little bit ironic, isn't it? This is Jacob's past coming back to bite him. In the end, he does get to marry Rachel as well, but that's when the second hardship hits. See, in the past, Jacob had been part of this horrible sibling rivalry between him and his brother Esau. It got so bad, like we saw earlier, Jacob had to flee the country. He had to go to a whole new place because Esau wanted to kill him. That's how bad it got. And now here in this faraway land, Jacob marries two women, two sisters, and they play out their sibling rivalry in his household right in front of him. You can see it in the way that they name their children. Leah's firstborn is called Reuben because Leah has been so miserable. Her husband doesn't love her, she's miserable, and her son's name is a perpetual reminder of her misery. And, and all the names are like this. They all show that there's a sibling rivalry going on here. 
Leah has four sons. Rachel has none. And then what, what do you think Rachel decides to do at that point? Well, I'll give Jacob my maidservant, and, and we can build a family through, through her. Of course, that's absolutely going to work, isn't it? Yes, of course. And then Leah thinks, well, that's such a great idea. I'll try it too. And so she gives her maidservant to, to Jacob. It's just crazy. And it reaches its crescendo when Leah's son Reuben one day finds some mandrakes. Rachel wants one of the mandrakes. Back in the ancient days, they were, supposed to, they were believed to help people with conception. Leah doesn't just give her a mandrake, though, does she? Leah bargains with her. I'll give you my mandrake. You let me spend a night with Jacob. This is outrageous. This is where the sibling rivalry has taken us. Jacob is now a pawn in this horrible exchange between the two sisters. It's Joseph's past coming back to haunt him again, isn't it? But then there's a third hardship that Jacob faces. It doesn't really stem from anything in his past. Laban, Jacob's father-in-law, makes a deal with Jacob. Jacob can look after some, some sheep over here. And at the end of the time, whenever Jacob decides to leave, any sheep who are kind of spotty or stripy in this flock, well, Jacob can have them. And, and, and Laban will own the rest. My guess is there's, there's not many spotty or stripy sheep in the flock, but, but that's what Jacob's wages are. But then Laban deceives Jacob again. Before Jacob can go back out to his flocks, Laban whispers in his son's ears, He tells his sons, you go and get the spotty ones, the stripy ones, out of Laban's flock. And so they do. They take them out of Laban's flock and they put them in their own flocks. What can Jacob do now? His wages have gone from a little to nothing. What does Jacob do? Well, he comes up with this great idea. He he thinks, I know what I'll do. I'm going to get some tree branches, some sticks. I'm going to cut some of the bark off the sticks so now the sticks will look stripy. And then I'll put the stripy branches in front of the sheep so so that when they breed, well, that means the lambs will come out stripy too. This is the equation that, 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 that Jacob is working on here. Stripy stick plus normal sheep equals spotty lambs. You can see this. It's just crazy, isn't it? But at the same time, do you start to feel a little bit for Jacob? This is how desperate he is. Ever since he got to this land, ever since he got to Padanaram, his life has just been characterized by hardship. But in the midst of the hardship, God has done two things. God has blessed Jacob. His family has grown. And to everyone's surprise, uh, God actually gives Jacob some plenty of spotty sheep in his flocks. God has been blessing Jacob, but secondly, more than that, God has been refining Jacob, hasn't he? Through the hardships, God has been, he's been reshaping Jacob's character. He was this self-interested jerk. He was a rat bag. But it's kind of like God has been showing him what it's like to be on the receiving end. The deceiver got deceived twice. The instigator of a horrible sibling rivalry has got caught in the middle of a different sibling rivalry. 
in his own household, with his own wives. And through these hardships, God has been refining Jacob, chipping away at his character. So in chapter 31 of Genesis, we start to see a little bit of this refined Jacob coming out the other side. In chapter 31, God speaks to Jacob again, and he tells Jacob to go back home. And what do you think Jacob's response would be? Well, actually, now, it's great. Jacob's response here is obedience. He gets his family together and they go. And when they go, there's a bit of deceit that's played out here. But who's the one who's deceitful? It's Rachel. Or more importantly, it's not Jacob. Rachel steals her father's little household god, but Jacob doesn't. He's, there's, he's free from deceit here. When Laban finally catches up with Jacob, we see, we see more of his refined character. Now, at this time, Jacob acknowledges God. Jacob acknowledges that everything he has has not been brought about by his own hand, by his own strength. It's come from God. God has given this to him. That is Jacob's public confession. And so we see, we see a change in Jacob here, don't we? The self-interested deceiver... He didn't pray to God or give thanks to God, but here he is. And what's he like? He's been obedient. He's, 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 I've lost my note here. He's been obedient. He hasn't been deceitful. And he's acknowledged God in what he's done. Jacob stands before us here, having gone through the hardship. He stands before us Changed, not perfect, but a changed man, changed by God. That's how God worked in Jacob's life. That's how God continues to work as well in his people. We said before, God chooses us to be his people in Jesus. But he doesn't just leave us where he finds us. God refines us too. He reshapes us. He makes us to be more and more like our saviour Jesus. And sometimes, yes, sometimes, God uses hardships to do this. And God doesn't do this because he's vengeful or cruel. Actually, this is God treating us like we're his people. More than that, this is God treating us like we're his children. If you've got a Bible there, come with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, it's going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Uh, I'm going to read from verse 7. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. This is what it says. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, We've all had fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems present at the time, pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace, for those who've been trained by it. 
Do you see what God is saying to Christian people here? He's telling us that we're his children. So he cares for us and he's good to us. And part of his good care for us is actually to discipline us. Hardships in life can be an expression of God's discipline. It's not then saying that every hardship we face must therefore be God's discipline. No, it might be, but it might not be. Because there are many reasons that we face hardships in life, isn't it? For example, we live in a fallen world. And that just means that illnesses happen, that natural disasters happen. And just because we're undergoing hardship doesn't mean that that must be God's discipline. Although sometimes things like a fallen world and God's discipline can work hand in hand. When we experience hardship, it's not necessarily exactly like Jacob's either. It's not necessarily that something from our past, a past sin, is coming back to haunt us again. But it may be. What this passage clearly tells us is that if we are God's people, then we're God's children. And that as God's children, we can expect discipline. Some of our hardships will be God's disciplining hand to us. God working to refine us. Remember, you get refined by going through a fire. It hurts. God is reshaping us so that we can share in his holiness. So what do we do then? When we go through hardships, how do we respond? Or maybe even a better question is, how do we even know if God is using this to discipline us? In some sense, there's no way of being 100% sure that something is God's discipline. Sometimes we, we can figure this out in hindsight, but in the moment it's quite difficult. I just want to suggest then three quick things, uh, one question and two things to remember, three quick things that, that might be useful to consider as we go through hardship. Here we go. As we go through hardship then, first, when hardship comes, ask, ask these kinds of questions, something like this, you know. What might God be teaching me here? What might God be teaching me here? Or how can I respond to this situation in a way that is pleasing to God? Asking that kind of question, it, it opens up all sorts of possibilities. It may be that God is not using this for your discipline and you're not sure what the answer is. But just by asking the question, what we're doing is we're trying to understand things from God's perspective. Trying to be open to listening to God. Maybe there is no answer. But it helps to ask the question. And if we ask the question, it's useful then to remember, number two, remember the goal of discipline, the goal. What is God doing with discipline? Hebrews tells us that God wants to refine us. To make us more like Jesus. Or, or to use the words of Hebrews, God wants us to share in his holiness. He wants us to be righteous. This actually helps us then, doesn't it? As we try to understand what God is teaching us through, through his discipline. We know the end goal. God isn't trying to, to, to teach us how we can follow our dreams or how I can best be, be the best me for the best world. Uh, he, he, God is on about moving us towards holiness. If we know that's the end goal, then it be, can become clearer about what each instance of discipline might be teaching us, might be drawing us to. Ask the question, what might God be teaching me here? 
Remember the goal of discipline. And then remember who receives discipline. God disciplines his children. That is, if you're experiencing hardship and you think it might be God's disciplining hand on you, it's not a sign that God is judging you. It's not a sign that God has turned his back on you. In fact, it's a sign of the very opposite thing. God disciplines his children. If you experience God's discipline, it's God's love for you. He's doing it for our good. That might be hard to swallow at the time. So it's useful to remember this now and commit this to memory now before we go through the hardships. Today we've been talking about suffering and hardship and I'll be honest, I I really haven't answered every question. I haven't even tried to answer every question. But I hope we've seen this one thing, that God chooses and uses people who aren't all right, who who haven't got it perfect, who haven't kicked all the goals. But God wants us to move toward holiness. And one way he does that is use hardships, hardships that shape and mould us to be more like Jesus. See, God's discipline, it does bring about pain, but it's about more than pain, isn't it? The question we have to wrestle with is, do we have the spiritual maturity to heed his discipline? Why don't I pray that we would? Our gracious and good God, we've seen the way you acted in Jacob's life. Some of it might seem funny to us. And indeed, it's so ironic the way that Jacob's past came back to haunt him. But as we look deeper, we're also struck by how hard it was for Jacob to live this life. And we're struck by the way that you used those hardships to make him into your man. And Father, when we think about ourselves, we know ourselves that none of us are perfect. We're all rough around the edges in some parts. And yet you choose to use us to make us your people. So God, we thank you. We thank you so much that you deal with our problem of sin in Jesus. And we thank you that you're also refining us, changing and shaping us to be your people, to be more like Jesus. Father, you've told us that you do this sometimes through hardships. Please help us respond well to your disciplining hand. Not to run from you, but heed what you're trying to teach us. We pray that by these things you would change us and shape us. We thank you for your spirit who you put in us, who gives us the ability to to change and become more like Jesus. We pray that he'd be active in us even this week as we go about in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.